Welcome once again to Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science Community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill and Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and here on the program we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy eyes for a lifetime. Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio in Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISEM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is also supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu slash GES or follow the center on Twitter at at GES Center NCSU. And finally, Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Gene-Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Research Triangle Park. Gene-Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at GeneCentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Among some young people today, vaping and e-cigarette use are all the rage, while actual cigarette smoking is on decline. Along with the vaping fad comes concerns about health effects and even the development of new respiratory diseases. My guest on Radio and Vivo today is a leader in researching the potential dangers associated with vaping. 
and the results of her studies will startle you. Ilona Jaspers is a faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill. She is a professor in the Department of Environmental Sciences and Engineering and the Department of Pediatrics, Microbiology, and Immunology. She is director of the UNC Curriculum in Toxicology and deputy director of the Center for Environmental Medicine, Asthma, and Lung Biology at UNC. She earned her B.S. at Seton Hall University in 1992, followed by her M.S. and Ph.D. from New York University in 1994 and 1997, respectively. Her lab is located at the Center for Environmental Medicine, Asthma, and Lung Biology on campus, where she collaborates extensively with investigators from UNC, the EPA, and the EPA to conduct translational studies related to air pollution health effects. Dr. Alona Jaspers, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Pleasure to be here. I've covered your CV entries a bit in my <laughs> introduction, which is extensive. Thank I only you. just hit the high points. Sure. Uh, but I'd like to flesh that out a little bit so th- that we can get to know you a little bit mm-hmm. better before we get into the content. Tell us about your journey. How did you become interested in the area you now work in, and what brought you to where you are today? So um, I've always been interested in how things work um, on a sort of biological basis. Um, and I, I actually got my uh, bachelor's degree in uh, pre-med and never really had any intentions of going into medical school. I really don't like sick people, so that's really a bad sort of (laughs) premise to go to medical school. But I was really intrigued in how chemicals sort of affect the human body. Um, And the two lines of research that sort of, um, you know, really investigate that are pharmacology or pharmaceutical sciences on the sort of more therapeutic way or toxicology on a more adverse way. So... It really is just a matter of dose sometimes, whether you go into a sort of therapeutic way or into a toxicological way. And it really was just serendipitously that um, I ended up in uh, at NYU in the program Environmental Health Sciences. I really liked the group there. It had some fabulous mentors. Um, I'm still in, in close contact with them. I'm actually collaborating with them right now. Um, and it was just sort of serendipitously um, where where I basically got into into that PhD program, and then when looking for jobs, I actually thought about um, going into industry. Um, I really didn't think of an academic career. I really didn't think that that I was, you know, that's that's my thing. Um, but it continued this sort of curiosity about trying to further, you know, what how, understanding of how things work. And I felt that academia was really the best way to do this. And I uh, came here, you know, to do my postdoc at UNC. Have to say, Chapel Hill was really not really the best way for me, best place for me in the first year. I grew up in a big city, went to uh, school in New York, came to Chapel Hill, was a little slow pace for me, um, and um, actually thought about leaving after a year, had an odd job offer to go back to New York. Um, But this place grows on you, um, and I love it here. It's a fabulous place to do research. It's such a collaborative community. And as you pointed out, you know, in your introduction, this is such a great place to do research, 
especially related to environmental health and toxicology. It's really a hot spot in the world uh, to do what we do. Sure. You, you've got lots of entities doing Absolutely. similar work and a lot of collaboration. Absolutely. Well, um, what led you to begin investigating uh, e-cigarettes and vaping? So that's an interesting question. So I've been studying cigarette smoking um, for, oh God, probably th- since 2006. So so for a good while, um, I've been looking at the health effects of, of cigarette smoke on the respiratory sort of immunity and, and immune responses, respiratory health. Um, and then um, my collaborator, uh, Rob Tarrant, from the Marsico Lung Institute at UNC, approached me to put together a large uh, grant that was actually sponsored by the FDA. So we put this thing together in less than a month, which was absolutely nuts. We got it, and that's basically was the, the sort of springboard for doing all of the e-cigarette work. We got the grant, I believe it started in twenty. Uh, 2013, 2013, uh, which is when, when e-cigarettes were really sort of just in its, like, you know, in its baby feet, baby <laughs> shoes. I mean, it was really nothing there yet. And as a, as a matter of fact, when we wrote the grant, uh, we actually uh, wrote the grant focusing on new and emerging tobacco products. Um, where, you know, e-cigarettes were only a part of it, but it clearly and rapidly turned out that e-cigarettes really demanded a lot more attention from researchers like us. So that's how we basically got started. I see. Excellent. Well, Ilona, I know this may be a rather simplistic Mm -hmm. question, but for our listeners who may not be familiar with this topic, how does vaping differ from cigarette smoking? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, so cigarettes, as we all know, is basically tobacco that is lit up, and it is a combustion process that basically burns the tobacco product, um, and you inhale it through the cigarette. Um, e-cigarettes are a little different in a way that you actually are um, vaporizing a liquid, which then forms an aerosol um, an aerosol being sort of like a mixture of gas face and sort of little droplets that you then inhale. So it's no combustion process per se where there is a fire, uh, but you're heating the liquid to temperatures that probably are causing, you know, things that are causing all, not a combustion degradation, but are causing heat-related chemical reactions. Um, so it's a liquid that's aerosolized, vaporized, not burning off the tobacco. I see. That, that's a very interesting explanation. Uh, well, at this point uh, in uh, mid-2019, mm-hmm. how widespread mm. is vaping and e-cigarette use, and, and what are the trends at this okay. point? So, so the numbers keep coming out and keeping, keep being updated. I'm actually working for the – I'm actually looking for the um, early 2018-2019 numbers that should be coming out from the Center for Tobacco Products at the FDA relatively soon. Um, so last year I focus on – I call them the U25s, the under-25-year-olds, the young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, among those, it's the, the rate of vaping is in the 20 percentile. Um, which is sort of alarming because that's pretty darn high. That that translates to millions, doesn't Correct. it? Correct. Yeah, 
Uh, and as you say, that is an al- alarming thought. Yep. And is it is it growing? So it grew from 2017 to 2018. Those are the numbers we have. Mm-hmm. Um, it grew quite a bit, which is when the CDC and the FDA sort of rang the alarm bells because – um, it, it really increased at an alarming rate. We don't know whether it has plateaued or is going down. We need to see whether the not what numbers are coming out uh, soon. So we don't know yet. I see. Okay. Uh, well, I'll, some older adults uh, seem to be vaping as, as mainly for smoking cessation mm-hmm. strategy. Um, but it's largely a phenomenon among young people, as you were just saying, right? So it is among smokers and I'm, you know, because I'm in that category myself, I'm going to call them middle-aged smokers. How about that? Not <laughs> elderly. Right. Um, <laughs> so among, I'm clo- I'm unfortunately closer <laughs> to that characterization. So I have to be careful. <laughs> um, so among sort of middle-aged smokers, um, vaping has been advertised as a potential tool to promote cessation. Mm-hmm. Um, the studies, whether this is actually an effective tool, um, the, the, the debate is out there. There's a debate. There's just a study came out yesterday that I was alerted, uh, from a cohort in France where they, um, the summary line is, was basically that it may have been uh, a tool to, um, enhance cessation, but e-cigarette use in smokers was also associated with a greater relapse. So you may be quitting to smoke, but you're also potentially more, uh, likely to relapse. A study that was conducted in the UK uh, showed that there was an increased ability to stop smoking within a year, but um, the e-cig users also continue to be addicted to nicotine. So you are really exchanging one nicotine addiction with another addiction. You're not really addressing the nicotine addiction with e-cigarettes, even as a cessation tool. And I saw another study again that just came out this morning, and I haven't read it yet, so I'm just going to give you the headline. Sure. Um, but the the alert that I got, it basically showed that actually giving smokers money to quit is actually enhancing the cessation the most. Wow. <laughs> so I haven't read the study yet. That was just the headline, so I'm really curious to see what they what they did there. Well, if that had only been around a dozen <laughs> or so years ago, I, I would have enjoyed right. taking advantage of that. Right. <laughs> uh, well, as you mentioned, vaping, uh, at least in the numbers that are available, appears to be trending up sharply. In, in, the, in the demographics of, let's say, um, 12 to 18, or actually 12, let's call them 20, 12 to 24-year-olds, yes. Sure. Uh, and cigarette smoke, cigarette smoking is declining yes. among that population. Yes, very right? much. So it's in the in the low single digits. Uh, now, is it is cigarette smoking now carrying a a social stigma yeah. among that age group? Yeah, uh, as it now does in the population as a whole. Yeah, I, b- I believe so. I think the whole, you know, tobacco free kids campaign and the stigma that I think this generation that's growing up now has been sort of grown up with that smoking is gross and it just smells bad and you don't want to smell like an ashtray or mm-hmm. uh, things like that, I think has really been effective. So I think smoking is certainly poo-pooed uh, among all the teenagers that I've spoken to, and I don't think any one of those actually smokes cigarettes. So that's it's really gone gone down quite a bit. 
And that that's a wonderful development too. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Um, uh, I have a uh, I consider her a colleague of mine, Sally Herndon, from the um, Tobacco Control Prevention Branch of the North Carolina DHHS, and mm-hmm. she has. I borrow her slide, and I actually borrow what she says when she sort of explains that slide because the downward trend in the tobacco use up until, let's say, 2015, she basically said, I was so thrilled to see those numbers because I thought I was going to be out of a job. Uh, but then e-cigarettes came around, and obviously she's not. So it basically, the, the downward trend in smoking uh, was almost made up and more by the upward trend in e-cigarettes. And, and, of course, your whole point is that vaping and e-cigarette use come with their own dangers. Uh, we should look at that uh, in some depth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, it took us several decades to uh, really understand the health effects of smoking cigarettes. Um, you know, the first Surgeon General report on, on smoking came out in the 60s, and was, it took us years to really fully comprehend. And we're still finding things that are associated with smoking. So, the reality is e-cigarettes have only been on the market in the U.S., and there's sort of, you know, discrepancies about the exact time frame here. But let's say they came onto the market in the U.S. in 2007. They really didn't take off until 2010. So we really don't even have a full decade of this sort of mass marketing of the e-cigarettes. So, um, you know, we, we don't really know yet what these health effects may be. But everything I've seen, they're not without health effects. Right, sure. Well, I'll I'll read you back a, a quote I mm-hmm. pu- pulled from you. E-cigarette users have their own unique response patterns and modified immune health effects. Yes. Tell us a, a little bit more about uh, the the research you've been conducting. Yeah, this is this is so we we published a paper in 2016 about that where um we basically took uh, respiratory, you know, tissue samples, non-invasive samples from a group of otherwise healthy smokers, um, e-cigarette users as well as non-smokers, and analyzed them for um, gene expression patterns uh, that are associated with immune responses. And what we found was that um, cigarette smokers had a certain set of genes modified as compared to non-smoking controls. And e-cigarette users had the same genes modified, uh, but also a lot more. Um, and on a sort of, you know, gene-by-gene basis, the responses induced in e-cigarette users was a lot more uh, dramatic. So not only did we see the same responses, but we also saw new and unique responses. That was sort of like the first study and everything, and, and I have wonderful colleagues um, across the U.S. And, and the world now sort of really sort of supporting with their own research these findings in that we see things that we've seen before, but we're also seeing sort of unique responses and patterns um, in these e-cigarette users in the respiratory tract that we've not seen before. So um, that sort of tells me that, you know, there's something different going on here. Absolutely. And and one of the things that really impressed me when I, I've heard your presentation recently, you're seeing different diseases, mm-hmm. respiratory conditions show yeah. up in, in these people. Yeah, right? and I have I have actually I sort of appeal to uh, my my clinical colleagues all the time because um they may be seeing some of these cases in their clinic or in the hospital or whenever they take care of these individuals. Um, 
and they may see new, unique sort of disease pathologies uh, that could be potentially linked with e-cigarette use. Um, we're seeing things now, for example, in uh, the dental and oral biology. Uh, we're seeing things in the cardiovascular um, sort of diseases, and we're seeing things in, in the respiratory tract, where, um, let's say, a patient comes in with a certain disease or certain complaint, certain morbidity, um, and unless the physicians are asking the right questions, it's not, we're not going to be able to link those. But people are starting to do that. There's more and more case reports out now that are describing what you refer to as these sort of unique and new disease phenotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, they include things like um, certain types of like eosinophilic or lipoid pneumonia, which are a specific type of, of respiratory like inflammation that you would normally not see in smokers, but you all of a sudden are seeing it in these e-cigarette users. So we need to be on the lookout for things that we normally would not expect to see in a smoker, and we need to, clinicians need to ask the right questions. Do you, but you do see a trend that that is starting to yes, catch Yes, thankfully, on thankfully so, yeah. So we have um, – there's more and more studies coming out, more and more, you know, um, case reports uh, coming out. Um, you know more epidemiological studies. So yes, we're we're starting to 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 capture some of these things. And of course, it may be still be early days. Absolutely, for all of that, right? Absolutely. Most of these users are are young people That's who right. are going to probably be otherwise healthy. That's right? correct. That's correct. So yeah. so it may be a little while until we actually see the sort of severe cases or severe diseases or severe manifestations of of the use here. Yes. Well, uh, Ilona, along these same lines, tell us more specifically about your experiments in the mm-hmm. lab looking at one of the most popular vaping flavoring yeah. agents called cinnamaldehyde. Yeah, so um, I want to give a little bit of a shout-out to some of the folks in my lab. I have a wonderful, wonderful group of uh, students and postdocs. And um, this work was really started by a former graduate student of mine who's now a postdoc, Philip Clapp. Um, and he basically tested the toxicity of different flavored e-liquids. And he, he realized that, um, certain flavors behave differently than others. And in comparing what is sort of unique or different among those flavors, uh, he found that one of the flavoring compounds, cinnamaldehyde, which is the chemical that gives cinnamon its wonderful, wonderful flavor, that was really uh, present in these e-liquids at very, very high concentrations and had some really unique toxicities on its own. Uh, we have since then, uh, he's, he, he, we published uh, two papers on that and actually found that it has significant ability to completely shut down immune cells. Um, they're not dead. They're, they're perfectly viable, but they're completely incapable of doing what they're supposed to do. To give you an example, there's a certain cell type called macrophages. Uh, Macrophages are your Pac-Man that basically gobble up all kinds of bacteria, all kinds of debris. They basically are walking around and and basically gobbling up particles. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's their job. And what uh, Phil showed was that these macrophages are not dead, but they're completely incapable of 
doing basically gobbling up these bacteria. They're basically stunted. In the lung. In the lung, correct, in the lung. They're completely stunted. So since then, we've sort of expanded this, um, this cinnamaldehyde, and um, uh, we've expanded it to other flavoring chemicals as well and other cell types. Um, and these are studies that have now been picked up by another graduate student in my lab, Elise Hickman, who's just shown that neutrophils, who are also a very, very important sort of bactericidal first line of defense. It's basically that's that's the army that's right there. That's the patrols. Uh, they come in when there's a danger. They come in. They're your first line of defense, and they're also completely shut down by these flavoring chemicals. And the the difference here, I mean, as you mentioned, this the cinnamon flavoring. You know, the the first re- reaction is, well, what's wrong with cinnamon? Right. You know, we we eat it all the time. <laughs> right. You know, I, right. I eat raisin bread every morning. Oh, I'm getting right. my cinnamon. Oh, yeah. and, you know, well, how could that be harmful? Yeah. So, and and I'm not going to stop eating cinnamon either. I love <laughs> cinnamon. Um, but this is, and I have actually a slide. I use a slide from my introductory toxicology course. I teach biochemical and molecular toxicology at UNC. And one of the introductory slides goes into the principle of toxicology, which is by Paracelsus, basically, who says the dose makes the poison. But it's not just the dose that makes the poison. It's also the route of exposure. Sure. So we have three major routes of exposures. We have inhalation, ingestion, and dermal or skin absorption. Those are the three major routes of exposure who you can come in contact with a chemical, a foreign object. Um, and, you know, we have certain ways of detoxifying things that are probably designed, evolutionary, have been selected for the way we usually come in contact with these substances. Um, cinnamaldehyde we probably should be coming in contact with through oral ingestion, and it's perfectly safe. Yeah. We're not designed to inhale it. Yeah. So what, my, what I often teach is you can actually increase the toxicity of a perfectly safe compound by just changing the route of exposure. And cinnamaldehyde and all of these flavoring chemicals are exactly that, where they're perfectly safe to ingest. We shouldn't stop eating cinnamaldehyde or cinnamon raisin bran or cinnamon buns or anything mm. like that. Um, but when we're inhaling it, our lung is not equipped to take it up. So it's the route of exposure. Sure, sure. And the physiology is completely Absolutely. different, right? Absolutely. Yeah, in terms, of, in terms of the physiology of how we metabolize and how we absorb um, these chemicals is obviously very different whether you go through your gut or through your lung. Very different. Indeed. Uh, well, are you confident that the results you've seen in the in the lab, in in vitro experiments, uh, where the immune cells are in the lungs are, are shut down mm-hmm. by exposure to cinnamaldehyde and, and some of the other flavoring agents, are you confident that those results are actually taking place in, in human lungs? So you'll have to have me back here in about a year. We're doing these studies right now. Okay. That's exactly what we're doing. You're um, doing the IV, IV, <laughs> So <laughs> we're, 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 doing, we're doing these sort of controlled exposure studies now, um, you know, to, to these cinnamon-flavored um, e-liquids, and you'd have to have, you know, they're ongoing, so... We're looking forward to seeing some of the results. Okay. You no, know, no preliminary results. I, you, nope, you can share? nope. Nope. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, it would be premature, but uh, we will definitely follow oh, up. Oh, sure. On that. Sure. I, you know, I'm not under the same 
same restrictions that you you must be as a responsible scientist. And I'm guessing that it seems very likely that you're going to recreate these conditions in in people. I, I would I would think so with everything that I have seen because the effect is so strong. Um, you know, I would I would hope that we're reproducing. Um, I think we're going to be seeing without going too far out on a limb here. I think we're 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 going to be seeing some effects. How is that? That's um, <laughs> that's good. Perfect. Well, um there are actually hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands uh, of these flavoring agents being burned in these products and inhaled into still developing lungs mm-hmm. of of teenagers and adolescents. Uh and aside from your work, very few of those inhaled compounds have been studied for their mm-hmm. potential health effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, are other labs doing this this type of research? Yeah, or? there's 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 many labs out there. Um, just to name a few, um, there's a group out in in California who's actually sort of done a very sort of systematic review of these different flavoring chemicals and the toxicity. And what's really interesting, it's actually not thousands of different chemicals is actually much more of a finite group um, of chemicals that are mixed in different ratios to make up these different flavorings. Okay. So it's actually mm-hmm. not thousands. It's probably closer to maybe 20, 30 chemicals oh, really? that are that, mixed that, that are mixed in okay. different ratios in order to make, you know, bubble gum versus strawberry daiquiri versus, yeah. you know, cool mint or whatever. So there's actually a much more finite number that is that is used. Um, and so it makes it much more manageable. Um, there are also studies going on um, that were recently published by my colleague at Duke, Sven Eric Yord, who's shown He's that... He's been on the show. Who's <laughs> awesome. I, I, I love Sven. Um, he is... Um, he's shown that um, there's actually chemical reactions within the e-liquid. So just because you're putting in one chemical, that doesn't mean that's the chemical you inhale. Because these are very, I think what people need to understand, the chemicals that are in there are very, very reactive chemical. They're not going to um, stay alone, for lack of a better word. Um, they're going to react with each other and with other compounds. So you're going to have secondary and tertiary reactions that may potentially enhance the biological activity of these flavoring compounds. And Sven has just uh, has recently shown some of that, and uh, we sort of reproduced and expanded on, on those studies as well. So why is the lung so different in mm. terms of its ability to metabolize foreign compounds? Yeah, I think this, that's, a, that's a really sort of interesting philosophical question. Um, and I've sort of sort of thought about that. I think it's really evolutionary driven. Um, if you think about what probably the biggest danger is, you know, evolutionary speaking, is probably ingesting a toxic substance. And our gut and our liver is superbly equipped uh, in metabolizing and detoxifying things. Yeah. Absolutely superbly equipped. That's their job, right? That's their mm-hmm. job. That's mm-hmm. their job. The lung really isn't supposed to be doing that. Yeah. Um, the lung is there to obviously for gas exchange um, and obviously to fight potential infections that are coming in through inhalation, but not doing the things that the gut and the liver uh, are supposed to be doing. So I think it's just, it's, they're, they're, it's just not meant to be. Indeed, uh, which presents many challenges yeah, when absolutely. you start inhaling things you shouldn't That's really right. be inhaling. That's right. That's right. 
Uh, well, Ilona, you've said before that it is vitally important that the working comparison mm-hmm. needs to be e-cigarettes versus nothing. Yes. As opposed to e-cigarettes versus cigarettes. That's right. Would you elaborate on that? So um, I actually just um, sort of elaborate. I mean, I try to find good comparisons to make my point better. Um so cigarettes contain thousands of different chemicals. Of those, over, I think, close to 70 have been identified as cancer-causing chemicals. Mm-hmm. I would be hard-pressed to identify another consumer product that is legally on the market that is more toxic, has been identified to be more toxic than cigarettes. It's, it's, it's hard to find one. Sure. So... Why do we assume that they're, we're actually going to make something that's legally available that's going to be even more toxic than something that we already know is really, really toxic and really bad to your health? So I think the comparison is wrong. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a wrong comparison. We shouldn't be making that. Um, and there's going to be very little, very few things that are going to be more toxic than cigarettes. I mean, think about it. Do, do you know of any, I mean, I don't know of any consumer product that's legally available that is more toxic than cigarettes. So why do we, why do we start there? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So the problem is when you say that e-cigarettes are less toxic or they're safer than cigarettes, um, some people may just hear they're safe. It's a false equivalent. It's a false equivalent. That's exactly right. So mm-hmm. that's why I always want to make that point. We shouldn't be comparing cigarettes to e-cigarettes, we should be comparing e-cigarettes to nothing at all. It, it's like uh, saying beer is a lot safer than moonshine. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, you know, a hand grenade is probably safer than an atomic bomb. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, Alona, let's spend a bit more time on uh, some of the social aspects sure. of this situation. First of all, where does the FDA stand on vaping and e-cigarettes at this at present? So they're still um, so they're 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 certainly behind some of the legislation that's um, out there right now. Tobacco Twenty One uh, is out there, which basically restricts the sales to twenty one only. You know, nobody under the age of twenty one, with potentially some exceptions for for military. Um, so they certainly are proposing that. Um, there, it's. I think they're they're caught a little bit in a bind here because there's still data or suggestions. Let's call it suggestions out there that e-cigarettes are a potential cessation tool. Um, if that were the case, I think then they have a potential place in our society, but they need to be controlled. The problem that I see with all of this is the mixed messaging. Um, when you say e are a safer alternative to smoking as a cessation tool, again, a lot of people just will hear that they are safe. And I think that's what FDA is sort of really struggling with right now. It's like how, how, how can we sort of regulate this? Um, unfortunately, I think the genie is out of the bottle, and it's going to be hard to put it back in. Indeed. Do you, do you think part of this is the, the fact that FDA has not had 
control of tobacco products until relatively recently? That's, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting point. As you know, the Family Smoking Tobacco and Prevention Act was signed in 2009 by then-President Obama. Mm-hmm. The deeming rule, which actually deems all tobacco products, including e-cigarettes, under the jurisdiction of FDA, was passed in 2016. So you are, at that point, it was already, we're almost already too late, um, at that point. So I think, I think the, the, uh, the growth of e-cigarettes just overwhelmed and, and caught them by surprise. And, you know, like, like many government agencies and not, not to their fault, um, they, they they can't be very quick in their reaction. So I think it was just the, the progress and, um, the marketing of e-cigarettes just occurred so much faster than yeah. the FDA could react to. I see. Yeah, good point. Given that, uh, you, you are now, uh, running the FDA. What what do you want to do in terms of regulating? Well, I'm not I'm not running the FDA. Uh, well, we're we're being hypothetical here. <laughs> so I think there is there are data already out there um, that clearly identify certain flavoring chemicals um, as toxic. Cinnamaldehyde is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, why not basically say? Things like that, clearly identifying chemicals that we know are toxic, remove them. Sure. Um, Sven Yord, who from Duke, has done really, really phenomenal work on menthol. Um, menthol, again, there's lots and lots of data out there. So why not do it, like, you know, step by step? We don't have to do all of it, but, you know, basically just say e-cigars cannot contain A, B, and C because we know those chemicals are toxic. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. A, that to me is sort of like a low hanging fruit. Do you think you'll see any, all of the, any of that anytime <laughs> soon? Well, I would hope so. Um, what am I? What are the chances that that actually happens? I'm I'm not sure. How's that? <laughs> that, that that's fine. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Yeah. Uh, what is your take on Jewel, mm. the the company that has taken so much of the Market share, and currently, according to what I read, seventy-two percent yep. market yep. share. Yep. Are, are they acting at all responsibly, or are they mimicking the maneuvers of big tobacco? Uh, particularly since Altria, one of the biggest cigarette manufacturers, now owns thirty-five percent of Juul. Yeah, wasn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, if you can't beat them, buy them. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think the, um, Jewel really, um, started off really badly in terms of how they marketed. They clearly marketed it towards young adults yeah. and adolescents, teenagers, whatever you want to call that age group. They clearly, clearly marketed it. And it took off, um, it really took that market by surprise. And now they're trying to sort of remedy that. Um, I think they're trying to, do some PR uh, that is going to put them into a better light. Um, I don't know whether you've seen some of the commercials now. I have indeed. Yeah. That basically uh, puts Jewel into the hands of middle-aged, you know, people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's still not really, really popular. And again, I think the damage has been done. So yeah, I, I, I've been seeing those ads, and and you know, the first reaction is, "What a." Bunch of BS. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't um, think and, and they're. It's, it's smacks of big tobacco all over it. Right. 
So as you said, Altria bought 35% off Juul, and with that came their entire machinery of um, everything that they, you know. Which is huge and quite quite sophisticated. Huge and powerful. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So, I mean, they claim they are seeking to eliminate e-cigarette use among young people under 21. Do you you buy that? I'm not seeing how they're going to do that. Yeah. How are you going to do that? I mean, I, I have not seen uh, Jewel putting significant amounts of money on, like, high school education programs, um, cessation programs, um, things like that. I have not seen them do anything that makes me believe they're sincere in that. Um, you know, use the profits to basically start tobacco cessation or nicotine cessation pro- programs for 14- to 18-year-olds. Um I've not then then I would believe you're actually sincere you're actually you know genuine in this um in this statement I'm not I have not seen that Interesting yeah it, it seems kind of hypocritical ultimately Yes uh well Jewel is is based in San Francisco mm-hmm. which <laughs> recently banned yeah. Jewel and other e-cigarettes yeah. Uh, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I saw that, and I know the people who are behind all of that. I I still have to wrap my head around how they're actually going to enforce that, and what kind of resources need to be put um, put up by the city to enforce it. Um, a lot of the sales of Jewel are online, so how is that going to be prevented? Mm-hmm. Um, so then you're going to go over to Oakland and, you know, buy jewels. So I, I understand what they were trying to do, and I think it's it's an interesting experiment. Um, I just don't know how they're going to enforce it. Do you share any concern that the, this ban could be counterproductive, leading young people, uh, or adults for that matter, Directly to cigarette smoking? Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. I think it's going to be more because the, the, the population who is interested in or is using Juul, I'm not sure they're going to necessarily then switch to cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could be proven wrong. Um, I think what's going to happen more is they're going to find their Juul elsewhere. There's going to be sort of like a, you know, not a black market, but a, a way sort of to, to, to get these pods and to get the Juul. So I just, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting experiment. Yeah. Do you, would you be in favor of, a, of an outright ban, say, at the federal level? Of Juul? Of Juul and, and other I don't think we. I don't products? think we, we, we can because, again, I, I, for, for a 20-pack-year history smoker, is Juul a potential way to get them off the cigarettes? I, I don't know. I have not seen the data. It's not out there, but I don't want to necessarily shut that door I because see. that's that's obviously a health concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what would be better is to just really do more grassroots um, education. Banning something is just going to make it sort of like more of a forbidden fruit. Um, and um, 15-year-olds or 18-year-olds who want to have this, they're going to get their hands on it. So I'm not sure banning it is really – um, the most, you know, the, the most immediate way of, of, of stopping this epidemic. I think investing more in grassroots um, education and also peer education for these, for these teenagers and adolescents so they understand what they're getting themselves into, I think is, is 
probably a better approach and much more long lasting approach because just mm-hmm. jewel just because jewel is banned you have so many more now that are just in the pipelines who are waiting for jewel to be banned so they can take up a mu- bigger market share mm-hmm. so if you ban jewel you are favoring others um because there's plenty of other products out there copycats that would r- rapidly take the place of jewel so where do you stop sure so. sure um, well, what about the recent move by a school district in Nebraska mm-hmm. to start randomly testing students who take part in elect- extracurricular activities mm-hmm. for nicotine? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I saw that. Yeah. W- would you like to see similar measures uh, adopted nationwide, perhaps? Um, I mean... You would probably catch, you know, a lot of you, you. I don't, I don't know whether you want to know the answer to that because I think there's going to be a lot of positive testing kids out yeah. there, yeah. Um, and um, you know, sort of. I don't know what they're going to do with that. Are they going to take things away? Um, so, so just testing randomly kids for nicotine. What are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. How are you going to enforce that? Uh, well. Along that same line, Alona, just how addictive is mm. nicotine compared to other addictive chemicals? Yeah, so nicotine is, and and this this is a lecture that I actually found fascinating from uh, my colleague at Duke, Abi Rosvani, who's in, who's a nicotine addiction scientist. Um, and nicotine, from from what I remember from his lecture, nicotine is probably the most addictive substance out there. Um, we talk about cocaine, we talk about caffeine, you know, those are not as addictive um, to the brain as nicotine. Nicotine is the most addictive substance out there. That's that's kind of scary. Yeah, it is. Even more addictive than Cheetos. <laughs> well, <laughs> apparently to a rat, Oreos are more addictive than cocaine. Oh, so. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that, that kind of makes some sense. Right. <laughs> um, well, Elena, what myths and misconceptions mm. about vaping and e-cigarettes would you be most anxious to dispel? Yeah, so there's actually a study that came out um, where um, teenagers thought all their vaping is flavors, no nicotine. And then you test their urine, and they're obviously testing positive for nicotine. So mm. um, just because you think or you're told that this is a nicotine-free solution, odds are it is not. Uh, nicotine is a highly addictive substance. Um, so those are the things that um, I think there's a misconception that this is just water vapor uh, with a little bit of flavoring chemicals. So I think that is a problem that we need to – that's a myth we need to disprove. It's not water vapor. And there are products being marketed that Yeah. Way? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's hmm. you know, it's, it's not just a, the way – how it is marketed is how social media propagates it. Um, so if people then say, it's, oh, it's just water vapor, it's safe. The, the word vapor alone, I think, has been propagated by the pro-e-cig and pro-tobacco product uh, industry, which is the wrong term. It's not a vapor. And there's actually studies out there. If you sort of compare what people think when they hear the word vapor, versus the word aerosol. When you think of aerosol, you immediately think of things like hairspray or some sort of chemical that comes out of a, out of a box or out of a tube, out of a can. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you hear vapor, you think of Vicks Vapor Rub or water vapor, something that is harmless. And that's the misconception here. E-cigarettes are not vapor. They are aerosols. Absolutely. That 
that's a that's a fine point. That, it uh, it is, and it, it's, it's my my aerosol chemist friends at at UNC have have explained the difference to me very very well, and and um, it is definitely a difference. Okay, well let, let's get that word out there. Then. Yeah, it's an aerosol. Well, you uh, you speak often to young people mm-hmm. about vaping. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are their perceptions? Is there much peer pressure involved? Um, the the one of the things that I have done when I do talk to kids is I ask them, um, you know, do you have any questions for me um, mm-hmm. or words that they associate with e-cigarettes and. A lot of times I get the, the misconception as you, as we just covered about the myth, you know, what's the big deal? It's just water vapor, yeah. you know, um, or, you know, what's the big, what's the big deal, you know, so, so that's the problem. That's the sort of, that's the, that's what I get from them very often. I see. Yeah. Uh, well, when I've heard you speak previously, you've discussed your efforts to keep your own teenagers <laughs> from vaping or cigarette smoking for that matter. Uh, and since you've discussed it publicly, I'll ask you, uh, and we'll we'll shout out to your kids. Sure. Hopefully they'll listen. <laughs> uh, how how is that going? Are you keeping them off? Now? Yeah. So Calvin and Ella, this is to you, and I'm sure they're mortified now. Yeah. Um, so even <laughs> consider this sort of social suicide. Um, I think their view has been sort of tainted just by their mother sort of talking about it all the time. Sure. Um, I don't believe they're angels. I'm sure they're going to be – there are engaging in risky behavior. I just hope that they understand that um, the, the you know, using or starting vaping is just the nicotine addiction and where this may go. And we just don't know anything that's the problem is, is why start, why, why use something that you don't know what it may do to you long term? I think it's just uh, very risky and, and um, you know, I'm hoping that they haven't used it. I don't think they have, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. I, hope, I hope they haven't. So uh, what, are, what are your kids telling you? Are they kind of your informational yeah. lifeline into the <laughs> They're very careful. World? They're very careful because they do not want to be considered, you know, high school snitches. So I actually ask, yeah. m- more often I ask their friends um, and just sort of like in, in conversations with them. And it, it, is, it is very prevalent. It is very, very prevalent yeah. in the local high schools. Um, and I actually ask their friends from neighboring high schools as well. And it's very prevalent. It's really, really prevalent. So are, are you involved in educational efforts? Yes, uh, we are. Um, I've made the decision that just uh, publishing papers in peer-reviewed scientific journals is not enough. Yeah. Um, it doesn't reach the people that I need to reach. Um, so we're doing quite a bit. And um, this is a shout-out to the UNC Community Engagement Corps and specifically um, Dana Hain who's been working very closely with me and my group in putting together um, outreach materials. Um, to give you an example, and I'm, I'm actually really excited about this. I had nothing to do with this. This is really just work by Dana and my graduate student, Elise. They're now taking articles that we publish on e-cigarettes and making them into uh, lectures or AP biology classroom materials. 
So students are now analyzing the data, coming up with their own conclusion, having to write sort of what the data show. So rather than they'll they'll never read my article um, in uh, in the peer reviewed scientific literature, but this is how we can get the data into the classroom, and they've done a phenomenal job. Beautifully done, and it's been launched, and they get some feedback. So I'm hoping that this sort of lecture material will sort of reach a lot more high schoolers in the future. Well, that's a wonderful effort at translation. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Yeah. You are listening to Radio In Vivo, and my guest today is Dr. Ilona Jaspers from UNC Chapel Hill. And we are learning all about her valuable work in the health effects of vaping and e-cigarette use. Well, uh, Ilona, before our time expires today, I wanted to be sure to uh, spend some time on your other areas of research. <laughs> uh, you do have a whole whole other program. Oh, yeah. uh, first of all, tell us about the grant that you and a colleague recently received to study the adverse effects mm-hmm. of inhaling toxic fumes from burn pits. Yeah. Now, what are those and, and who is the potentially exposed population? Yeah, this is this this is an interesting field. Um so as um many people may not know when um military um personnel was stationed in both Iraq and Afghanistan, there's obviously not really organized waste management systems. Uh, but if you can think about a military base, they're still going to, con- you know, generate a lot, a lot of garbage. Sure. So there's not a, you know, garbage truck that comes by, you know, on Wednesday or Thursday mornings like they come up by our house here. So what do you do with all the waste? So what they ended up doing is basically digging these major ginormous pits or holes with, um, you know, whatever equipment they had. And they basically just put the garbage in there. Um poor accelerants on top of it, which in their case is often jet fuel or kerosene, um, and light it on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pictures out there with military personnel standing right next to these black plumes um, that are without any sort of protective equipment, probably inhaling a toxic mess. Yeah. Um, and um, when I first saw these pictures and was invited um, to work with Dr. Boucher on this project, um, I, I looked at these pictures and I told him, I said, this is an inhalation toxicologist's dream. This is just, I mean, this is unbelievable, these kinds of exposures. Yeah. Um, so to fast forward now a couple of years, obviously a lot of the military personnel has returned uh, from Afghanistan and Iraq where those burn pits uh, were obviously used quite a bit. And there is now the VA and, and um, other sort of clinicians working with that population, with the military personnel are realizing that they they may have been coming back or may have been developing uh, certain pulmonary diseases. Um, and we are getting this, or we got this grant, to really establish a potential cause and effect relationship between what the VA clinicians see mm-hmm. and what they were potentially exposed to. And there's a Department of Defense. Defe- Department of Defense, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Now, it's, it's interesting that that is, that is actually going on when you think about the history of, of things like Agent Orange and things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so I think, I mean, obviously it has huge applicability for that population that was potentially exposed to in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But on a larger scale, people are still burning garbage. Globally, 
uh, basically burning your garbage is actually a, a way that a lot of people are getting rid of their garbage. So this may actually have applicability beyond the military personnel. But obviously, they're our first focus here in, in this particular study. I see. Well, that that should be interesting to see how that progresses. Yeah. So we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll have you back. To I'm really excited about those studies. About yeah, that. really excited. Um, I know that you have many years of experience in, in developing experimental models mm-hmm. to study a wide variety of respiratory exposures. Mm-hmm. Can you briefly briefly tell us about some of that? Sure. So we have we have a number of um, models that we use in our lab, sort of controlled in vitro models, where we take cells from humans and basically um, make them so they look like what they looked in vivo. So we're trying to sort of create really relevant models that mimic the human respiratory tract and sort of do controlled exposure. So that's one of the ways. Um, another method that was really um, optimized and developed by a postdoc in my lab, uh, Dr. Megan Rabuli, is a new tool that we're now using. We're calling them ELFs. Uh, they're epithelial lining fluid um, sort of sampling methods where we cut a uh, a piece of a synthetic absorbent matrix. It's almost like a sort of a filter paper. Okay. We're cutting it into the size so it fits into your nose. And you can basically insert it into your nose, uh, clamp down your nose just for a little while, and it absorbs all of the material that is currently in covering your nasal passages. So that includes... Um, pathogens, bacteria, viruses, fungal spores. It includes chemicals uh, and includes all of the markers of a biological response. So we're very excited about that. We've used it many, many times. We now have uh, many collaborations across the U.S. And, and in Canada as well where that technology can be taken out into the field because it's really non-invasive and can be done in kids, can be done anywhere. I should have brought one. We could have done it right here with you. Oh, that would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it can be done anywhere with anyone. Excellent. Well, uh, it could be interesting to hear what kind of data you you get from that. Yep. yep. Uh, So those are personal exposure. Yep. Uh, so we do devices, pers- absolutely. So we do. So it's a, it's a small strip. You basically just take a snapshot of you know how your nasal mucosa responds or is exposed to at a certain time, um, and we then can analyze this in the lab for for many different endpoints. So uh, we're very excited. We have many different applications for this now. Many different collaborators, and we're very excited about that. Well, that sounds wonderful and and really interesting. I, we should have probably spent a little more time on all that and a little less on e-cigarettes. I know. But, uh, that, that's where you're really making a mark today. Yeah. And, uh, I want to thank you so much sure, for being my, my pleasure. guest today. My pleasure. It's been a great show. Uh, and we've got some great guests lined up for the coming weeks here on Radio and Vivo. You can check the website, radioandvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our lineup of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio in Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community, right here on Volunteer Power, WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy this show, we ask you support this station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and make a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener, to su- listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.